0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at BYTE.com. That's B Y T E.com. Start your confidence journey today with BYTE. Welcome to Philosophy for Our Time. Facts are assertions. From the Institute of Art and Ideas, we examine every aspect of contemporary thinking. What is love? Is it real? Is democracy illusory and incoherent? Finding cracks in the way we understand the world. I think there is a crisis of values. Realism has failed. We debate the way forward with today's leading thinkers. We're all trying to understand what the hell is going on. A live podcast production from the Institute of Art and Ideas. Mindfulness just seems like another fad, but it actually has its roots in ancient Buddhism. Today, Stephen Batchelor, author of After Buddhism, explores the ideas and philosophy behind Buddhism, including its influence on Western society. It's wonderful to be here. I'm going to be talking about um, this book, After Buddhism, which I am shamelessly promoting here. (laughs) But rather than do anything boring like reading from it, I'd like to somehow just reflect on uh, why I've written it and how it uh, fits into my work over the last 40 years of uh, studying, practicing, and basically trying to figure out what the hell Buddhism is. What I've noticed more and more in this period of time is that Buddhism is somehow seeping into our culture. And in fact, it's been doing this in fits and starts now for nearly 200 years. Uh, Before which, the West knew absolutely zero about Buddhism. And um, we didn't even have a word for it. The word Buddhism is an invention of Western scholars. There is no equivalent in the classical languages. We see mindfulness pretty much in every sphere of modern life today. This has all erupted in about the last 10 or 15 years. And I find this quite extraordinary, really, how this practice has found its way into uh, completely non-Buddhist settings. We find it now being taught in the House of Commons, the House of Lords. 160 MPs and Lords have done eight-week mindfulness courses in uh, the Houses of Parliament. <laughs> now, if you had told me that, uh, let's say, when I was in India in the 1970s, That in 40 years' time, British parliamentarians would be sitting in meditation doing mindfulness. You could get mindfulness prescribed on the NHS. I would have written them off as fantasists. But that has come to pass. Even the title of this uh, festival, How the Light Gets In, has, for me, always had a Buddhist resonance. It comes from Leonard Cohen's song, uh, Anthem. And it says, uh, there's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. Now, Leonard Cohen, as probably most of you know, is a Buddhist, a Zen Buddhist, famously spent about five or six years living in a monastery during the 1990s. And um, many of his lyrics have implicit or sometimes quite explicit Buddhistic references. There's a crack in everything, to me, suggests uh, the truth of life being somehow fragile and broken, distressed, suffering. And it's through attending to that, that the light gets in. And in Buddhism, of course, this would be the idea of enlightenment. Enlightenment is somehow triggered by our willingness to consider what is broken and cracked and suffering and tragic. Even there, and again, That may not be what Leonard Cohen intended, but nonetheless, it fits that kind of reading quite well. But although we find in our contemporary culture there is a considerable attraction, interest, fascination with things Buddhist, be that the Dalai Lama being on TV, be that a mindfulness course being run down the road, there's also another side of buddhism which the, which is that that it comes across as another religion and it would be foolish to say that buddhism is not a religion if you were to take a plane and fly to bangkok or to tokyo or somewhere and go to a buddhist place you will see everything that you associate with religion you've got temples you've got icons you've got priests you've got holy books you've got incense you've got Bells being rung and chanting and monks bowing. It's all totally religious. And it would be crazy to say Buddhism isn't a religion because the evidence clearly shows that it's a religion in spades um, in many ways. And that's how it functions in most Asian societies. It has the same function in those places as uh, Christianity has in our culture. In other words, it provides a certain solace. It provides rituals, particularly around death and, and so on. It provides you know, all the things that religion would traditionally be expected to provide. But when we cast a more historically critical eye on the tradition, we find that it certainly didn't start out that way. And the earlier we go back to the foundational uh, teachings of the Buddha, um, there's no suggestion at all that he was interested in offering rituals of consolation or uh, erecting shrines or temples or anything like that at all. For many of us who have been involved in this for some years, there is an enormous interest in a kind of archaeology of Buddhism, suspending what appears to be the case on the surface, in other words, this excess of religiosity and dogma and priests and monks and so on, and tapping back through the... Uh, textual tradition primarily, uh, to see well where did all this where, where did all this stuff come from? And when we go back to as close as we can to the source, what begins to be quite striking is that we recover something much more akin to a practical philosophy. And I'm using the word philosophy here, not in the sense that we might hear it being taught in a university department. But philosophy, as was understood, uh, by the Greeks, who in many, many ways were doing something very, very similar to what the Buddha was doing around the same time. And there were, in fact, meetings. We know this. We know that uh, from the Greek records, uh, there's a strong possibility that Democritus went to India and studied there, and he would have done so effectively at the time the Buddha lived. We know about Pyrrho the founder of skepticism, uh, who accompanied Alexander to India and also studied with what they call gymnosophists, naked sages, which is just basically a generic term for uh, Indian thinkers, uh, monks, priests, wanderers, and so on. So when you strip back the more contemporary religious overlay of Buddhism, you get back to something called the Dharma, And the Dharma is very much a practice, it's something you do, it does have within it, I think, a fairly sophisticated critical apparatus of thought, it has a contemplative tradition, which is where we get mindfulness and so on, and of course it has a very strong emphasis on ethics. And so in many ways the Dharma is akin or very close to what the Greeks would have called philosophy, just as... The Greeks thought of the philosopher as a a healer and the student of philosophy as someone who went in search of some kind of healing or cure for the soul. Uh, The Buddha too presents himself quite explicitly as a doctor, as a healer. The Dharma he speaks of as a form of therapy or medicine. And the community are basically those who assist each other in their own healing, if you wish. So it's here, too, we find resonances with the ways in which mindfulness is being used in our societies today. Many of us will have come across it now in the context of healthcare. It's shown to be quite effective in terms of combating relapses into depression, anxiety, also just in terms of dealing with uh, pain man- management and so on and so forth. And, of course, in the, in the totally secular setting of modern healthcare, any Buddhist associations are, of course, uh, completely uh, absent. NHS didn't adopt mindfulness because they were Buddhists. They adopted mindfulness because it's been shown to work. And there are two points here I think we need to bear in mind. First of all, the Dharma needs to be evaluated, not in terms of whether what it says is true or false, that's another question, but in terms of whether it actually has a healing effect, if it actually makes a difference to the quality of your life. uh, That's the main point. The second uh, point is that um, mindfulness is not some marginal practice that went on in a few monasteries in outer Mongolia and then got discovered and then turned into a therapeutic intervention. Mindfulness lies right at the heart of what the Buddha taught. And in fact, in one of the most famous uh, primary texts uh, that we find in the Pali Canon, it opens with the phrase, uh, mindfulness is the only way to nirvana. Now, again, you've probably got all sorts of ideas as to what nirvana is. Put those out of your mind I would argue that when you do mindfulness practice in healthcare or whatever context you do, you are in fact opening your attention, your consciousness, to the possibility of, of dwelling in the world, in another way, in a way that's not determined by habitual patterns of self-centered reactivity. Whether that's attachment or fear or hatred or whatever it might be. You settle into a still, clear, open space. And that still, clear, open space is nirvana. Nirvana is here, nirvana is right at the heart of what you're experiencing in this moment. Trouble is, it gets constantly overwhelmed by thoughts and fears and fantasies and plans and busyness and so forth and so on. Mindfulness is about cultivating and opening up that space. Not as an end in itself, to sort of feel nice and spaced out and chilled and cool, but in order to (coughs) cultivate another perspective from which to live and to lead your life in relationships, in the world, at work, and so on and so forth. So mindfulness is a totally central thing. Now, I can't think of any other religion in which you could take a central practice uh, and turn it into a totally secular discipline that can then be subjected to clinical trials and be shown to be effective in some way, irrespective of whether you adhere to that religion or not. And this, I think, seriously questions whether at heart uh, what the Buddha taught is a religion. I would argue that we need to return to its core Uh, sense of being a practical philosophy and in this way working towards what um, we're now beginning to call secular Buddhism. In other words, a practice in which one is completely committed to seeking to lead your life according to a set of values, engaging in certain disciplines, exploring certain ideas that have got nothing whatsoever to do with holding any uh, religious beliefs or belonging to any form of religious institution. And this, I think, brings us also to another rather central idea, and that is the notion of the practitioner. If you've ever hung around with Buddhists, they'll sometimes say to you, I've got to go and do my practice in often a slightly precious way. And then they will disappear to their bedroom and they'll sit on a cushion and they'll light a stick of incense and and they'll do whatever they do and that's their practice. Now, I'm I'm being slightly facetious here. But the uh, point is that this uh, dharma, what the Buddha taught, is not something that we're asked to believe. It's something that we're invited to do and if in doing it, that uh, leads to c- a certain qualitative uh, change in a positive way in, in who you are and how you live, then that's, in a sense, what it's all about. Uh, so we become practicing humans. Now, this idea has been picked up recently in uh, certain elements of contemporary philosophy Towards the end of his life, Michel Foucault uh, wrote about le gouvernance de soi, le souci de soi, the the governance of self, uh, concern for the self. Uh, And then he also talked in a famous essay about technologies of the self. And he was quite explicitly going back to the Hellenistic philosophers again. I'm not aware that he had any interest or knowledge of Buddhism. Uh, But nonetheless, he sought to restore the sense of philosophy as a practice, something that you do that makes a palpable change in how you live, and that leads necessarily into ethics. What matters is not what you believe or even what you might experience in some quasi-mystical state of enlightenment, but what really matters is does that provide you with a framework in which to live, and that framework in Buddhism is traditionally called the Eightfold Path, which has to do with the way we see ourselves in the world, the way we make choices, the way we speak, the way we act, the way we work, all of these things. The entire range of our humanity becomes something that we consciously and deliberately seek to practice. And this was also, for the Greeks, um, uh, implicit in the word ascesis from where we get the word asceticism, which, of course, has got a very negative ring in our culture. In fact, it's interesting how so many of the Hellenistic ideas have become somehow banalized and trivialized. Stoic, epicurean, cynical, skeptical, ascetic. They've all got a sort of negative-ish kind of ring, uh, and yet they all go back to forms of philosophy which had in common the idea of engaging In a practice, that the purpose of philosophy was to achieve eudaimonia, uh, human flourishing or well being. Uh, For Democritus, for Epicurus, for Pyrrho, it was about experiencing ataraxia, a kind of trouble free state of mind, inner peace. Very, very similar to how I just described nirvana. My own sense, in fact, is that by tapping back into the roots of Buddhism, we re-, re return to the same kind of thought world as we find amongst the Hellenist philosophers in about the fourth century BC. So to me, that's quite exciting. There seems to be a convergence here, not only between mindfulness and therapy and so on, but also, more importantly, uh, into the roots of our own philosophical traditions. So that's been a very roundabout way for not talking about my book. But I think it does set a frame. I wrote this book in many ways for people who are drawn, say, to the practice of mindfulness, but who are seeking something more. And I spend much of my time teaching meditation retreats uh, in different parts of the world. And a significant number of people on these retreats today have come not because they're interested in Buddhism, but because they have had some experience through the practice of mindfulness that has led them to ask questions about who they are, about what their life is about. And there's a whole wave now into the Buddhist world of people seeking something more, and that more I would describe as a philosophical and ethical framework within which the practice of mindfulness can be integrated and situated. And this book, in many ways, is written for people like that. It's an attempt to uh, strip away the religiosity of Buddhism, to strip away its metaphysical religious beliefs like reincarnation and karma and all of these things, and to recover its secular soul, if one could say such a strange thing. But also in the book, um, I not only try to articulate what such a secular Buddhism might look like and how it might uh, be understood today, but at the same time, I seek to recover a much more human sense of the person Gautama, we know as the Buddha, uh, rather than this rather idealized, divinized, Uh, person that we are familiar with from Buddhist images and temples and so on. But who was the human being? Who was the man? What can we reconstruct about this person's life, his personality, what he was seeking to do? And again, going back to early sources, we do, I think, still uh, have the possibility of finding the human Buddha. And this, I think, meshes very neatly with our recovery of a more secular dharma. So why I call this book After Buddhism is because in some ways I think where we're going is uh, going to leave what we commonly think of as Buddhism as a religion somewhat behind. Um, And what that might open up, well, we don't know. But the way in which uh, something new might emerge will only occur through uh, people who commit themselves to these practices and these ideas and this ethic and how that then plays out in their individual and their communal and their social worlds. We hope you enjoyed this podcast brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. Let us know what you thought by tweeting at IAI underscore TV with the hashtag after Buddhism If you enjoyed this talk, check out The Weird and the Wonderful, which you can watch on the IAI TV player. For more episodes, subscribe to the Philosophy for Our Times podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher for more big ideas on the go. We always love to hear feedback, so please email us on podcast at iai.tv. Look around, you can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars.